Great job, great job. And um, the fine arts where they will be performing, that's the meeting I'll be at and um, we'll be out in a couple of weeks. But uh, we're going to be cheering them on close up and, and uh, I know you will remember them in your prayers. Be remembering them from afar. Father, as we open our hearts to Luke chapter 15, we ask for the help and the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Work in us, through us, and for us. It's more than a prayer, Lord. We realize that at any given point in our lives, everything could break down if it weren't for your sustaining hand. So we invite your, your presence to not only be among us now, but to be with us in strength as we go forward. Order our steps, guide our thinking, continue the process of our sanctification because we declare individually and as a body, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor anything from hell or in this earth will ever be able to separate us from your love. And we thank you that uh, you are able to keep everything we've committed to you as we wait for that glorious day. Help us to live in faith and uh, not be ruled by the circumstances of this world. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We want to um, talk today about another parable, another puzzle piece that God is graciously helping us understand and I want to talk to you about the one. This is something that involves a paradigm shift. This is something that involves us beginning to see things differently than perhaps we ever have. We are coming out of an age, and I say coming out of it, I believe God is leading us out of it, but we're coming out of an age in the church in the West where the emphasis has been about numbers and uh, the, imp I mean, and we believe in numbers. We talked about that when we were in the book of Acts. We talked about all the things that were called great and one of the greats was great numbers. But in so many circles, the church unintentionally gets reduced to a business and it gets reduced to a program. It's a commodity and pastors in the last 30 years or so have been trained to think as a businessman instead of as a shepherd. And so we buy into gimmicks, we buy into programs, and one thing a shepherd better remember all the days of his or her life is that shepherds smell like sheep. And we need to remember that it's community and it's family and I think one of the things that God is reminding us of, and, I, and we praise God for the phenomenal numbers uh, that are taking place in so many spiritual endeavors. This is not an anti-number. This is just an appeal to be sure that we understand the numbers and we understand how numbers can become important. Um, verse 1 sets the stage for what uh, some pastors call the lost chapter. I think it was Adrian Rogers used to call this the lost chapter and people flocked to hear what chapter of the Bible had been lost. But it's about lost things. 
This sets the stage. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, even when we mutter, Jesus hears it. And it says in verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven than, uh, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Few things Jesus could have said that would have made that crowd more angry than to say there's more rejoicing over one sinner that comes home than over 99 people who have no need of rejoicing, of uh, repenting rather. Now we understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus wasn't marginalizing holy living. And Jesus wasn't saying anything about uh, that would demean the, the process or the purpose of sanctification. We thank God that we can please the Lord through holy living. But he was surrounded by Pharisees and teachers of the law, and this was their mindset. I am worth more living a holy life than a hundred sinners that are displeasing God. And Jesus turned that story on its head and said, one sinner that comes home makes headlines in heaven more than a hundred, well, 99 people that are living right. Now again, he wasn't minimizing living right. That's the command. That's what he requires of us. That's what he wants of us is to live right. But sometimes we really don't remember that this kingdom is an upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last shall be first. And before they catch their breath, Jesus starts in on another story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, and it sounds like it's just more of the same, but right here, this takes a radical turn. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth with, with, in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
when he came to his senses, and here's just a little sub-note. Um, when you're praying for lost children and lost loved ones and lost friends, um, I think we need to always pray remembering that the day will come when they will come to their senses. Uh, don't, don't be discouraged if you can't talk them into their senses, but the day will come when they will come to their senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate Meanwhile, and this is where it gets up close and personal, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what's going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. It's interesting that the father goes to both of his sons. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The central truth of this message today is that we are accustomed to thinking of more as better, but God's estimation of numbers may at times be different from our own. Again, I need to repeat it one more time. Numbers, great numbers, big crowds are not the enemy. Every person in a church represents a soul. You know, every, every space in the parking lot represents someone's eternal destiny. Nothing wrong with thinking in terms of numbers. But again, I want to repeat it. We are at the place right now in our growth as a church where God is about to help us understand that he does not do math the same way we do math. <laughs> Let's talk about God's arithmetic. This was a tailor-made lesson for the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus had taught this lesson before. He, on one occasion, was standing in the temple watching people give. And there were those that made great fanfare of their giving. 
The rabbis say that at a time, I don't know how widespread it was or, or for how long it lasted or even when it occurred, but the rabbis told us that there was a time in the temple where when you made your contribution, you put your coin in, it would go down the metallic uh, cylinder and it would sound uh, uh, off as you gave your gift and everybody would know he's giving this coin or he's giving this coin or he's giving this coin. Kind of puts new meaning to the idea of Jesus talking about sounding trumpets when you give. But he noticed that this woman, I don't know how, maybe that system was in place. Maybe he just saw what the woman had. But she put in just two half pennies, just enough. It wouldn't even, it wouldn't even register on the scale of what was being brought in to the temple that day. But Jesus was fascinated and honoring of her because she gave out of lack. She gave all that she had. And even though her gift was small, it was, it was profoundly more important than those that gave out of great abundance. Jesus also had taught his disciples, don't think that my space is reserved for the upper echelon. They were holding back kids that were running to Jesus. That's the, that's the good sign of a loving person. Kids just kind of flock to them, uh, it, at least uh, some kids, not all kids. Some are more reserved, but... They were just flocking to Jesus and the disciples were doing everything they can to keep them back. There are Pharisees, there are teachers of the law, there are wealthy men that need to see Jesus. And Jesus said, do not ever keep children from coming to me because they remind me of what the kingdom of heaven is made of. There was no more lucrative business to, to pad the coffers of the temple than the tables of the money changers. But Jesus realizing that what the money changers were really doing is making it hard for people to get to Father, he turned the tables over and he did it twice. Now let's look back to our text for just a moment. There are three core lessons of Luke 15. They're so obvious, I'm not going to preach about them, but I do want to bring them to the table. Number one, the story of the lost sheep reminds us that every one of us is worth finding. When we do church, when we obey the Lord, we need to remember that every person within earshot of this church, every person that ever graces this church with their presence, whether they're uh, uh, the upper crust or just a lot of crumbs, you know, down here on the bottom, whether they've come from the uttermost or the guttermost, every person is a life worth finding, is a life worth redeeming, is a person worth investing into. We got that, right? Everybody is important. And may God have mercy. I don't mean God. I mean God have mercy on churches that think they are for a certain class or a certain race or a certain culture or a certain economic uh, uh, level in our country. Every soul, every sheep, even if you have 99 that are fat and flourishing, 
Every stray sheep is worth finding. That's number one. Number two, the lost silver tells us that every destiny is worth reclaiming. I know that we have a tendency to think it's too late for some people or they have squandered their life. But this story of the woman that had uh, the 10 silver coins is a very interesting one. It, it could be speaking to a woman in a state of poverty. You know, she, she had 10 silver coins. That wasn't enough to make her rich, but it was probably all that she had. And uh, the, the reason I don't think it's speaking to poverty is most poor people wouldn't have had 10 silver coins. Or, or maybe Jesus was just drawing on a hypothetical situation and said, if you got 10 silver coins, even if you lose one, you don't say, well, I still got nine, praise God. You go looking for the lost. But I tell you what's more likely. In those days, someone that was a craftsman, um, more than a field laborer, they might do what we do, guys, on our, um, on our betrothal, on our engagement and our marriage. We might sink everything we have into a beautiful ring. We might be paying on it, you know, uh, 280 easy payments. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we might be paying on it, but it's our moment to express our love. And it was not uncommon, it was not common, but it was not a rarity for a man that might be like a skilled worker, like a carpenter, for instance, who might generally have opportunity to, to, to make extra money by working extra jobs. It wasn't like a field hand. But they would give their wife, and it was usually in a band that would go around her head, Ten silver coins. It was like an engagement ring. It was like diamonds. And she would be given this, and it was a token of his love. But with time, and boy, I tell you, ancient culture was rough on women. It really was. Um, by the time Jesus came along, the rabbis had determined that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. I mean, literally any reason. If she just didn't look good to him anymore, he had the right to divorce. And Jesus, was, his teaching was, you got to take marriage a lot more seriously than this. But one of the things that would happen, now this isn't in the Bible, this is in the writing of the rabbis. One of the things that would happen is that if she displeased him, or if she had been unfaithful, or if one rabbi literally wrote, if she burns his meal, that's grounds for divorce. And what he could do is either divorce her or this is something that was far more shattering. In this beautiful thing she wore around her head, he could take one of the coins away. And that would signal to everyone in the village, I'm not pleasing my husband. I have cheated on my husband. I have failed my husband. And we kind of laugh about that and say, oh, that's ridiculous. But that was a big deal. And he said, here's a woman that a coin has fallen out, perhaps. This is what Jesus was saying. Had fallen out of this band. And it fell out. There's nothing nefarious or evil about it. It fell out and she's lost it. But she knows the next day when she goes into town, everybody's going to wonder, what did she do? How did she fail? What is it in her husband's sight 
that is no longer pleasing to him. So here she is wrapped in shame and despair. Nobody's going to believe her explanation. So the only thing left for her is to find that coin. So she looks and finds the coin. <coughs> and it was a case where she was saying, I know my destiny is to be with my husband and to be a good mother, to be a good wife. My destiny may look like it's lost, but I need to reclaim it. So loved ones, we not only want to reclaim lives, but we want to help people reclaim the destiny that God has for them. But here's the third one, and this is where we might be mistaken. There was the lost sheep, the lost silver, and now the lost son. But if we're not careful, we will think this is about the lost son. If it's about the lost son, then it's just a repeat of the lost sheep. It's not about a lost son. The lost son sets the context for what Jesus was about to teach. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, I want you people to know. He says, you, you don't understand the value of a life. You remember one time Jesus was, was uh, his feet was being washed by a woman that was a prostitute. And the righteous in the room said, if he were really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she is. But this is what the message of the lost son was about. Here it is. We know that there are lost sheep people that need to be reclaimed. We know that there is lost silver, destinies that need to be recovered, callings that need to be reclaimed. But he said, here's the problem in dealing with lost sons. If we miss the lesson of the son and the silver, we can easily lose our own destiny. This was not about the wayward son. This was about his brother. Now, let me wrap this up by talking about his brother for just a few moments. The elder brother, who was the object of this third story, that's who the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law represented. He was missing out on life with his father. Nothing had been withheld and nothing had been enjoyed. How does he view his right standing with the father? I've been slaving for you. I've lived in rigid discipline for you. I've had no extravagance for you. And the result is I've had no joy in being your son. He was missing out not only on life with his father. Now, guys, I want you to understand, listen to what father said when he issued all these complaints. He said, there's never been a moment when anything has been withheld from you. There's never been a moment when anything that you asked was denied you. But loved ones, I want to tell you, churches that become great churches are not lighthouses on a hill that their goal is to blind all of those who are searching. Churches that are great churches are lighthouses on a hill that show the path for those who are struggling to get home to Father. And I know for a fact, because I was raised in a culture where this was honored by so many people. Thank God, not so much in my home church, but in the, in the religious culture I grew up in. There are people that value themselves because of the rigidity of their life, of what they will not 
put up with, of who they will not associate with. They take great pride in saying, I'm a slave. And guys, I want to tell you, there's no word in the New Testament used more to describe the people of God than servant or slave. That, that's what we are, but there's a difference between being a servant and having the oppressive spirit of a servant. You may say, well, I'm honoring the Lord and I tithe right down to the penny. <coughs> I never miss church. I, 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 in fact, I, we are so religious and we are so solid, we made sure that our kids never had any fun growing up. I've been a slave for God. There's been no extravagance in our life. But I'll tell you what's also true of you, friend, almost without fail. You have no relationship with your brother. And the only relationship you have with your father is that of a slave to a master. We have a tendency to complain about the prodigal when we pray as this son of yours. But God calls the prodigal this brother of yours. Something else that's interesting, this isn't, again, it's not in the Bible, but it's in Jewish culture. Whenever there was a falling out between one of the children and the father, guess whose job it was to mediate and bring the two together? The oldest son. The oldest son. The dad may be wrong. The child may be wrong. But this elder brother is in training. It's his job. He's about to take over the lion's share of the family business or the family fortune. And part of his training is I will go to my brother and see what's going on. I will go to my father and I will get his perspective. And it is my mission in life to bring these two feuding parties together. That's why we are called ambassadors. For God, we take the role of the elder brother. We see a world that is, that is forlorn and forsaken and without hope, lost in trespasses and sins. And we are the elder brother. We are the ambassador. And it is our job to bring reconciliation, is the New Testament word, to them. But can I tell you this? Not only did he refer to his brother as that son of yours, and have nothing but critical words for the behavior of his brother. Can I tell you this? He also never showed concern for his father's heart. Not once. Not once in this story is there ever an indication that he gave any thought to the idea that his father's heart was breaking. Not only... Uh, uh, does it say that he just kept going, doing what was right, but he never made an attempt to reach out to his brother. He could have found him. He knew the story. Stories had come back. He knew he had wasted his living on prostitutes. He knew what was going on. And he knew that from the reports. And he knew from the forlorn look in father's eyes around the breakfast table, this man misses his son. But what did he do? He said, he allowed it to turn into bitterness. Well, he's still got me. I've never done this. Why doesn't he pour all of his goodness on me? 
Why doesn't he pour all of his attention on me? But loved ones, let me tell you something. When you get an attitude of the elder brother, it's not that the father doesn't do that. It's that you're blind to it. You say, how do you know so much? I've been there. I've been there. I know what it's like to be so devastatingly disappointed by a relative, <coughs> by a friend, or by you. All of us have. We all get in that place. We look at a relative and say, they were raised in the same church I was. Why aren't they serving the Lord? Why isn't this relative doing their part in this? Or why isn't this friend doing their part in that? And it seems like we're walking all alone. At least that's the way it felt with me. <clears throat> but loved ones, can I tell you what it's like when you're out of step with someone? You can try to do all kinds of kind things and they're never received as such. A child in rebellion will, receive, will perceive kindness of parents as meddling in my business, as nagging at me. and You don't understand me. But what we don't understand is that the bitterness of our heart has poisoned us to any type of affection that's coming from the Father. Again, I've been there. It's what I like to call my stupid years. So here's the elder brother. Jesus said to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law, he says, this, you understand what it means to be lost. You're so critical of them. You understand what it means to be shamed and to lose your destiny, to be cut off from the house of Israel. You know exactly what that means. But he says, you don't know how to live in a world that has fallen. You don't know how to help your brother and you don't know how to help the father. So what do we do with it, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Let's go to Christian life lessons and wrap this up. <clears throat> and guys, I want to tell you, this will not change overnight. It may for some. It may for some. But what we're talking about, what I'm proposing that we do is a long-term investment. Here's number one. We need to slow down a little bit. Slow down. I remember one time that God spoke to me uh, um, and he was teaching me and I, I, it, it's nobody here. But I felt that um, uh, someone had really walked down a carnal pathway and had, had really just turned their back on grace and it was, a, it was a very ugly thing. And the Lord, in a dream, the Lord showed me this couple and then he showed me their life and it was a pile of trash and garbage and building timbers. Just the whole, their whole house had shattered. And in my dream, I said, well, Lord, I don't rejoice in this. Let me tell you something. I, I, I can absolutely stink with self-righteousness sometimes. I said, Lord, I don't rejoice in this, but this is what happens when you live your life the way they live their life. This is what happens when you attack the church and you turn on everything that's going in the right direction. And I, I said, I'm sorry this is such a mess, but what do you want me to do? And the Lord spoke to me in the dream and said, I want you to understand you caused this. 
And I was, it was as though the weight of the world came on my shoulders. And in my dream, I said, Lord, I didn't cause this. They caused this. You remember they did this, they did this, they did this. This was their attitude. This was their attitude. And I said, Lord, I, I said, I can say with all honesty, and I, and I meant it, and I still mean it. Lord, I, I, I was the victim here. I did not cause this. And the Lord spoke to me and said, you caused this by becoming an elder brother when they made the decisions they made. You patted yourself on the back for your right decisions and you condemned them for their wrong decisions. He said, don't you remember that I commanded you through the scriptures to have mercy on those and pull them like a firebrand from the burning? Don't you remember that I told you in meekness Instruct those that oppose themselves so perhaps they can be uh, removed from the snare of the devil. And I looked at that and I realized, all of a sudden in my mind, I realized if I had just, if I had loved a day longer, if I had done a, 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 an act or two more than was required of me, <coughs> if I had not walked away thinking, well, Jesus said, in this world, you'll suffer persecution. Guys, do you understand the Lord was telling me that the dangerous thing when we're done wrong is the same danger of when we come to the saving knowledge of the Lord. It's, it's, it's not understanding that the spirit of the elder brother can latch on to you. Can I tell you this, and I'll give you an illustration and we're done. The devil, when we come to Jesus, the devil knows that it's own, he knows the majority of us are not going back to the old life. The majority of us are not going to be tempted with prostitutes and heroin addiction and all the things that we might have come out of. <coughs> but I tell you what he wants to do. He wants us to fall into the trap of the scribes and the Pharisees. He wants us to make the mistaken assumption that our righteousness is because I've slaved for you. I've never partied once. Lord, my devotion to you is so intact, there's never been a moment of extravagance. And what happens, it may take you a month to see it. It may take you 15 years to see it. Some people go to heaven and will never be aware of what happened till they stand at the judgment seat of Christ. But when we're done wrong, we have the tendency, we have the tendency to slip into the elder brother's role. And what happens, you say, how can I know that I'm in the elder brother's role? You might be doing everything you need to do. You might be faithful in everything that you're faithful in. You might have a list of great accomplishments, but two things are conspicuously absent in your life. The Lord is not extravagant in his relationship to you. Oh, he loves you. He may speak to you, takes care of you. But you've not had a relationship of real intimacy and joy with the Lord for a long, long time. And your whole relationship with Papa has turned into this is what I'm doing for you. Now we need to do that. But that's where it stops. The other way you can tell is you are getting more and more separate from sinners 
They are, they are more reprehensible. They, I'm not pointing to you guys. Um, they, they, are more, they are more reprehensible. They are more wicked. They understand what I understand less and less and less. Their life's going to come to a shambles. But if you're not careful, you will be the main reason that their life falls apart. We've got to remember the goodness of God leads you to repentance. We've got to slow down and remember that though Job, I don't know of anybody that was maligned more than Job, other than Jesus, that was maligned more than Job by his friends. And you know how God got him out of it? God said, Job, I'm going to fry him like sausage. No, Job said, pray for your friends. When God corrected the friends, he said, and I have instructed Job to pray for you. That's, that keeps the elder brother's spirit at bay. Here's the second thing. Ask God for one, for the one. Um, pastors especially, um, <clears throat> I, you say, what, what made you start thinking about this? Because I think most pastors have a tendency, um, <clears throat> the, a crowd can be down a little bit. And because the crowd's down, pastor feels like the day was not a success. Or one person can be critical and the pastor will fixate on that criticism. But one person can have a testimony one person can have uh, an encouraging remark. And you know what I found out? We're so out of balance at times that it takes 10 of those to, to make up for one criticism. That's not right. We're not focusing on the one. We need to pray for Nicodemus moments where people come to us after hours. We need to pray for well moments like the woman of Samaria that Jesus ministered to in such a special way. We need to pray for lame man moments where we're going to the hour of prayer. I mean, we're about our business, but something seizes us and stops us as it did to Peter and John. And all of a sudden, everything slows down while we look at that lame man and say, look on us. And here's the third thing. This is what I want to ask you to begin to pray with me every week. We're asking God to so move in our services that we will no longer just come and say, oh, that was a good service or Pastor Glenn taught us a great new song. We want our services to be marked by a one testimony every week. Now, there could be more than one, but we want instead of saying July 14th, 2019, oh, that was a good Sunday. Pastor gave us a good report about his eyes and so forth and so on. A good Sunday. I want us to begin to have the presence of God manifest itself that will say things like this. July 14th, 2019, that's where that single mom who thought of killing herself and her three children walked into the church saying, God, if you're real, I'm going to give you one more chance. That's our one for that Sunday. That's the one. That's the one miracle. Or it might be a healing. I don't know if I'm making it clear to you, loved ones, but we want to pray. And I know it'll take a while for it to begin to happen unless God shows incredible mercy. 
But we want to begin to pray that, Lord, with all that you do for us, all that you do for us, would you give us a testimony of a one? It might be one family or it might be one person, it might be one child. I want us to begin to understand that even though hundreds of people gather, God did something special for a one. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Let, let me be sure you understand. Does anybody like Cracker Jack? Yeah, yeah. I tell you, Cracker Jacks is the food of the gods. It began in 1896 and has, has now earned the official title, the first ever junk food. Um, the motto since 1896 was the more you eat, the more you want. Now, the New York Yankees tried to, you know, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack, you know, they tried to replace it with healthy food and they had a riot. They had a riot. God bless Yankee fans. They had a riot until they brought Cracker Jack back. Let me tell you about Cracker Jack. When it began, when it hit the market, it, it, it was a little pricey. It was eight cents a box. I remember when I was a kid, it was 10 cents a box. And um, you say, you say well, that's not much. Well, it was a lot when a candy bar was five cents. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. But I'll tell you why it was worth it. Not only was it delicious, I, I cannot prove it, but I, I think it may be that the manna in the wilderness was Cracker Jack, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, we were, we were just a middle-class family. I can't, you know, my parents can't pop down a dime every time we go into the store, but I tell you what my mom did every Friday. She bought groceries, and every Friday she did three things. She brought home everybody a pack of gum for Sunday, so your breath, breath would be fresh and everybody got a pack of gum for Sunday and everybody got their treat and mine was Cracker Jack. Now let me tell you about Cracker Jack. In those days, now I'm talking about the last, the last 50 years, the Cracker Jack prizes have been trash. Can I get a witness? They've been trash. Okay. But some of you remember the day in the 50s and 60s when they were prizes worth having. I mean, they were prizes worth having. You would trade them like you would trade baseball cards. They were quality gifts. Then they turned into this antichrist stuff and little, little pieces of paper that you fold. And you, just awful. Now I hear that they don't even have prizes anymore. They have this QR code where you can go play a game. Just another sign of the return of the Lord. <clears throat> Every Friday I'd help my mom bring in, bring in the bags of groceries and all the groceries were important. My mom's spiritual gift was cooking and I would love to bring in the bags. I love putting things away. But all the time I was looking through the bag, I was looking for the one. That one pack of Cracker Jacks because of the special prize. That's what I'm asking you to do, loved ones. Everything that's brought in this house is important. Everything that's done in this house is important. 
But I want us to rediscover something that a generation knew about Cracker Jacks. There's a little box among all the other groceries. And in that box is a treasure. At least to a six-year-old, it's a treasure. And I'm asking you to begin to pray with me so that when we come to church, it's, it, we're not preoccupied about this or that or the other. And it's not just coming together as glorious as that is. I want you to begin to pray with me diligently every week. God, bring us a prize. Bring us a one. Bring us a broken life. Bring us a hopeless situation. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to the scribes and Pharisees. You know the importance of a reclaimed life. You know the importance of a reclaimed destiny. But you fight against it by having the attitude of self-righteousness. Can we ask God to give us a recovery of the sense of joy when a sinner comes home? Would you stand with me? We're out of time. Got to go. Father, in the strong name of Jesus, we ask for your help. Lord, we, we, we want to stop viewing the one as a QR code. We, we want to admit, like Cracker Jack needs to, that we've, we've lessened the value of the treasure in the box. In the name of ease or profit or, you know, relevance, in the name of a dozen things, we have, we have taken the treasure out of having church. And Lord, we want to begin to look for the one again. We want to see people walk down the aisle in transformation. We want to see a child in children's church be filled with the Spirit and discover their destiny. We want our babies in the nursery to see angels and to have the taste of heaven put in their soul. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. I don't know how to end this today because I'm asking you to start doing something Except I would say this, the ministry teams are coming. They're going to be in place for those of you, if anyone wants to give your life to Jesus or if anyone has a desire, has a need to um, uh, receive prayer for healing or something like that, ministry teams are here for you. But others of you, I invite you to just come and say, Lord, Lord, I want the treasure back in my, my Cracker Jack. I, I want the treasure to mean something. I want to see with the eyes of a child again. I want to get rid of the judgment and arrogance <clears throat> that elder brothers tend to gather unto themselves. Lord, every life is worth saving. Every destiny is worth reclaiming. And Lord, help me to be a great treasure hunter for you. Let our church become a place of healing, of help, and of restoration. I invite you, come and just fill the altars for prayer. Go to the ministry teams if you need, uh, need prayer. Father, as we go, I pray you'd bless us spirit, soul, and body. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, guys.
Welcome his presence in our midst, loved ones.